0: Welcome back to Emerge. Um, If you want more context on the return of Emerge, I've been away for uh, the better part of a year, a little over a year, I think, Um, you can listen to the other episode that I released alongside this conversation with Zach. That's a solo episode. It's about 25 minutes long. I took the liberty of um, releasing that separately so you wouldn't have to encounter all of my extraneous thinking and opinions before you listen to this really, really, I think, wonderful conversation with Zach. Um, And I hope that this is meaningful to you and that you resonate with the shift in direction that this conversation represents. Um, And that's all for now. Enjoy this episode of Emerge with Zach Stein. yeah so as i said i I do feel like a quality of nervousness Mm -hmm. um this is the first conversation i've had in about a year for my podcast uh about a year ago after i came out of a 75 day solar retreat i had a conversation with you in this room uh and in no small part because of that conversation, decided to step back, both from my podcast, but largely from the internet mm. and the whole like kind of media ecology that I was participating in, uh, and, and focus more or less completely on, on the Monastic Academy and that that human community and the work that I was doing there. Um, and something you said not in our last conversation, but in one of our conversations before that kept ringing in my mind, which was, uh, paraphrasing. You said something like, you know, game A, game B, what really matters is the relationships you have with the people around you. And I think something that I've really appreciated about our conversations is that you are relentless in, to me, you, you, you appear, relen- you occur to me as relentless about focusing on what really matters and not getting lost in fashion or what might attract attention. Like you're, you're, you're aware of, and in a way, you your work is a response to the attention economy, but it's not captured by it in the way that I see so much of what amounts to intellectual discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I was I, open by really deeply appreciating that and, and recognizing for me how deeply my life and my work is informed by witnessing that in you and in, in our conversations. Um, and so, you know, as I sort of retreated from the Internet, retreated from a lot of this discourse, um, What I focused on instead was this human community at the Monastic Academy and a real lived engagement with this question that I think you ask throughout our conversations and in your book about like, what is the education that we need now in this time between worlds in order to, you know, one way of saying it, in order to create the kinds of human beings or the kinds of human minds that are an adequate response to the meta crisis in the way they live in the way they perceive and participate in the world and you know in digesting your work to the degree that I have been able to uh, in my life and training and work at the monastic academy i have come to see or take on uh, the perspective that the most, perhaps the most critical aspect of that education is ethics. So Rob Berbea, who's a teacher who passed away about a year ago, meditation teacher, who I very deeply admire and uh, been very inspired by, he said in one of his last lectures, which was on soul-making and ethics, he said, um, we don't need more Buddhas in the classroom. We need more Jesus turning over the money lender's table. That's actually what this time of ours is inviting. And so I have this question, I'm kind of coming to you, partly with this curiosity, of like, what is education of ethics? What does it mean to train in ethics? How would we create the kind of education that people would move through and on the other side would say, yes, this is an ethical Mm -hmm. person knows how to grapple with ethical issues and and do so in a trustworthy way. Um, And so that's kind of like my, where I'm coming in with, uh, and I have like specific directions I'd I'd like to explore with you, but I'm curious, like what comes up just with that frame? Well, first of all, just
1: kind of humility and gratitude for just the for what you said about my work and and there it hasn't been intentional the way i've been engaging with the attention economy in some ways it has been but in other ways it was just by virtue of my you know my responsibilities as a caregiver and as a scholar to basically you know have a certain distance from the fray there. And then, as we've talked about the education commodity proposition, <clears throat> discovering that, <laughs> that's when it became reflective that mm-hmm. there's actually, which we can all detect subtly, there's something that's being undermined when the self commodification kicks in and mm-hmm. when the attention capture techniques and the perfection of what amount to psychological warfare techniques to draw people into. A certain stream and the stream could be educationally beneficial for sure, but you're engaging the techniques of advertising and other things Mm. Uh, and when I started to see that I was like, yeah, you actually, and this is why I prefer to do your podcast (laughs) because you're not engaging in these things Mm. and, uh, and it's not that they're wrong per se, it's that they undermine the possibility of legitimate teacherly authority, <laughs> which is the only way to be in a relationship that's really transformative. But mm-hmm. They become entertainment. They become things you pay for. Mm-hmm. They become things you are a customer and have expectations around, mm-hmm. uh, different from the attitude of a student. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: when that, when those ideas locked in as I was finishing my dissertation with the education commodity proposition, then, I, then it did start to become mm-hmm. a more of a... Uh, kind of a practice, like not a set of rules, but kind of like, how do I navigate this and leaving Facebook and doing those things became part of that. And, um, yeah. And then seeking to collaborate with others. So the, the work I'm doing at the consilience project now being key there where it's about getting collaborative capacities going. It's about getting Mm. coordination capacities going, Mm. not about, um, lone wolf intellectual free agents you know but kind of like there needs to be a coming together so that's where a lot of my thinking is now is Mm. how to coordinate Mm. um with others so yeah i'm happy to be in this conversation and
0: yeah
1: and the question is a good one the question is really the core of the crisis is a systematic distortion of choice making like it's yeah. It's an ethical crisis that we're in. It's an educational yes. crisis, as I framed it, but yeah. if you we were to put some nuance on it, and I talk yeah. about the crisis of legitimacy, a crisis of authority, there's a, yeah. there's a crisis in the ethical and moral languages that we use to describe ourselves and where those ground out in first principles and first values and in ontology and everything. We're, yeah. we're not sure what it means to be good <laughs> anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not sure what it means to be good, and, and we're not sure like what is good to love. Mm-hmm. like What is worth loving that we could dedicate our lives to? And that's one of the ways that Rob Verbea framed it. He said that uh, often we think of ethics as the question of what ought I do, which it is to mm-hmm. some degree, but pri- before that is what is good to love and who is it good to be or become? And I, I think that's so beautiful mm. as an educational question. Like, how do you create the context, the educational context, in which people can actually encounter that mm. question? Yeah. yeah,
1: that's beautiful. I mean, the, the intrinsic relationship between Eros and yes Marx is something I've studied a lot. Yes. Gaffney and Wilbur yes. And there's many orientations and so you know we've talked about my metapsychology mm. before but that triple there the triple of insolvent development and transcendence mm. um and you can see the stoic videos for the details there but and i'll get into it up here but it correlates with at least th- you know it corresponds to at least three different
0: mm.
1: kind of big conversations about ethics yes uh, and what you mentioned about what is right to love, what is right to aspire to be, Mm. the Mm. virtue ethic, the the ethic of the virtuous individual, regardless of the outcome and regardless of the world. Um, This is associated with the transcendent in the metapsychology. The ought of the moral law, which binds us in mutual obligation by virtue of being persons is the domain of ensoulment, personality. Mm. richness of the life world, Mm -hmm. um, made articulate in moral judgment. Mm -hmm. And then the calculus of utilitarianism, uh, the focus on what the outcome of your action is, (laughs) and the efficiently executing of the right action is associated with development
0: right and which is where ethics usually gets reduced to in our
1: in western in western culture habitually with the emergence in the 17th century of uh you know what we know of the modern kind of uh ideologies yes you had uh basically utilitarian Mm -hmm. approaches to ethics being the the, the one that was respected as being scientific and so they put intuitive ethics, and even Kantian, like which they knew about deontological ethics, these things were interesting. But they were in this kind of realm of emotion and intuition, and they weren't scientific and rigorous and almost quantitatively renderable the Mm -hmm. way the utilitarian calculus is now. Utilitarian calculus is a utilitarian calculus, like it, it's very real. <laughs> mm. And if you're trying to do good things, you need to think in a very concrete way about mm. will what I do actually result in what I intend it to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, utilitarianism has a huge moment of truth. Mm. But the classic debate between, let's say, you know, like a Habermas who's taking a, a deontological view, which is that notion of the moral law, which is the Rawlsian view, right? mm. they argue with the utilitarians. Because they say, hey, there's a lot of things that would be very efficient and optimize the good for everyone that we would completely disagree with. Right. So, like, for example, there's a science fiction story. I can't remember, but it's basically a utopian society. And there's a party taking place and everyone's participating. And you learn that everything's perfect. But the whole society depends upon the torture of a single child. Mm. Yes. Right. Right. So from a utilitarian perspective, it's like, I mean, come on, right? Millions of people living basically a perfect life. The only thing I have to sacrifice is this one child gets tortured for a long time. Right, Rawls and Habermas and Kant and the deontological tradition, like, whoa, no, mm. you can never make anyone into an end. Mm. Excuse me, you can never make anyone into a means to mm. an end. Everyone is an end in themselves. Mm. We are obligated to treat people a certain way just by virtue of their being persons, irrespective mm. of how they factor into their mm. utilitarian calculus. So there's been that tension there between utilitarianism and the kind of theories of justice of Rawls mm. and, and Kant. And then both of those are looked at askew by those who hold a virtue ethic, Mm -hmm. like a stoic or a Buddhist ethic, Mm -hmm. who are basically saying it's actually less about the outcome and not about what I owe you, but about the way I am with myself, my Mm -hmm. integrity to my own Mm -hmm. best image of what's possible for me, Mm -hmm. the ability to maintain emotional control and to be, Mm -hmm. um, uh, to be infidelity to the the image. I hold of myself as a virtue, Mm.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: uh, like the love that I have, my aesthetics and personal relationships, the quality of them, the intrinsic value to them, placing that above anything that has to do with the moral law or utilitarian rights. So they each have a moment of truth and good ethical education works with them, uh, in their relationship. Um, and finds the different languages uh, that are appropriate for the different, and the different symbols and images mm-hmm. that you need to, to work with um, mm-hmm. for, those, for those domains. So, so that lays out that sense of like, yes, it's about what's good to love, but it's also about what I owe you by virtue of being a person, mm-hmm. and it's also about what's in the best interests of everyone mm-hmm. in terms of outcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the three forms. Need to be accumulated and again i'm yeah. you know my background is in i studied rawls that was the focus of my dissertation and then studied kohlberg very deeply um but who's a moral psychologist yeah. uh, and harmas and, and many others uh and so but there's there's so many different models in each of those yes. there's many different forms of virtue ethic. there's many different forms of uh kind of moral law deontology. Yeah. And there's many different forms of utilitarianism. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so the goal would be to take the best, <laughs> yes. most reasonable of each of them uh, and then weave together a, a, a meta ethical, yes. meta psychology essentially.
0: Yes. You know? And, and um, so the virtue ethics belongs in the insolvent. Or is that in the transcendent? Virtue ethic is in the transcendence. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the Rawlsian kind of
1: is in the insolment. Insolment. yeah, huh.
0: yeah. Huh. It, that's counterintuitive to me I think uh, mm-hmm. I, I think of virtue in terms of like having an image of myself as a virtuous being and wanting to live in accord right. with that and so that's the symbol of
1: your self transcendence which huh. you can actually practice alone huh and of course, it's going to interanimate with your insolment process, but the installment is about going down and into the relationships with the others that you're bound to mm. in life. Mm. Um, and so that's mm. why the insolment practices, like the moral law is painful, like the moral mm. law <laughs> mm. makes put you in the clutches of life. Like, yeah, what do you right. do when there's a dilemma between this person you have an obligation to and this person you have an obligation to? Like, right. That happens. It's a legitimate moral dilemma. Right. It's like, like the antimony that might be implicit in yes, the moral. and it requires being down and in the relationships right. um, and in the images of uh, the success or failure of right. your actions vis-a-vis the law that is implicit between you. And again, that's so that's the deepest level of, the, of that tradition. Um, and so the virtue ethic is, yeah, like I said, the Stoic, the mm. Buddhic, Buddhistic, focusing on the, the symbol of self and the symbol of mm. transcendence, yeah. which in many ways is what one does in a context when the, when the moral world is corrupt mm. and when the utilitarian capitalist is obviously unjust and out of mm. whack, then you yeah. can actually still be a good person. Even mm. though it's impossible to intervene in the political system, and impossible to intervene yes. <laughs> like in family systems and other places right. to make something whole, you can yeah. still be a good person. You can person. still have your integrity. You can still have your integrity. Yeah. And so that's the transcendent virtue ethic,
0: basically. Uh, yeah. um, huh. and, and so there's this question that I've been, I'm, I'm going, um, we have a branch of the Monastic Academy in Canada. Mm. And in August, I'm running a three-month kind of uh, neo-monastic intensive. Yeah where I'm just designing this whole system, you know, informed by the work we've done over the last decade at Nasca Academy, but taking in, weaving in a lot of the conversations I've had on my podcast, it's, exciting. it's extremely exciting. And, and this question for me is like, and, and I think it's probably gonna be less relevant for the people that are coming because they're weird, and they're like already in this kind of space, but there's this question for me as an educator of what invites or what affords somebody to fall in love with the question of what is good, mm. which strikes me as a as a kind of insolvent question, or a kind mm. of question of like uh, well, yeah, it, the, the, how how is it that that question really does get opened up for people? Mm. like what do, do you have a sense of like what or any guidance on that? I mean this is where.
1: Kohlberg and others Theo Dawson in the tradition of studying moral development like the yes. this is about the 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 birth of moral consciousness as it kind of emerges in the human mm-hmm. and and so i think that um, you know there's good evidence to suggest that just like the human organism adapts to spatio-temporal realities. Like, kids learn how balls bounce, and kids learn how to circumnavigate rooms and lean on things and and know that some things are heavy and some things are light, and no one teaches them that. They do that by exploring the space. But there are limits in the space that the organism adapts to, gravity being a great example. So the idea is that there are and this is me articulating moral realism <laughs> that there are comparable deep structures to the moral fabric of human relationships which kids bump into <laughs> mm-hmm. just like you can bump into a wall or miscalculate the weight of and importance of just like you can mm-hmm. think something's light or mm-hmm. cool when it's actually mm-hmm. heavy or hot mm-hmm. so that there's a and this is again moral realism saying mm-hmm. that if you live in a world where there are people and you interact with people uh and you use language and uh, you encounter the uh, intrinsic, you know, quote, laws
0: mm.
1: of, yeah, respect for persons, what that entails. right? So like lying, for example,
0: mm. <laughs>
1: is one of those things that's, um, you know, kids learn about very early. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think, so this question is about at at which points in development do we... For whatever reason, stop yeah. asking these questions and mm-hmm. stop feel like feeling like we're actually in touch with something that's real, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you're on a playground with a kid with a group of kids and you're handing out m and ms and you give ten m and ms to every kid and you give five to one of the kids, that kid's going to be very upset mm-hmm. and, it sh- and it should be it's unfair mm-hmm. unless there's a reason that mm-hmm. you did that. This is mm-hmm. Rawls on the playground, right, <laughs> and it's like. <clears throat> that's real to the kid. Tangible, Mm. like hitting a wall that you didn't see. Mm. And so that sense of, Mm. um, at what point do we leave that realm of the obvious moral realities and come into some simulation, simulacra, mimetically mediated realm where we don't have immediate feedback. Like on the playground, if you did that, there'd be immediate feedback that it was wrong. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But as you get older and things are more abstract, many of the things you do that are wrong, you actually can't get immediate feedback to learn, right? You have to have a deeper awareness into the structure of the, of the field. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes kind of this question of, yeah, the kind of like missteps of ethical socialization Yeah. and, Just like in psychotherapy, kind of stepping back down to those really obvious things. That's why, like, a monastery is a good place because you're all living together, man. Like, yeah, we have way too much people not doing dishes and cleaning bathrooms in the world, and that's an example of just like what's fair, what's not fair, right? And it just comes out in the wash if you're forced to actually. Coordinate around shared realities in a way that's perceived by everyone who's involved as fair. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah
1: Yeah. and so I think it's very important that you know, the ethical training is Embodied and concrete and woven into life. That's why religion. Mm -hmm. That's why religion Did it well, I mean you can there are problems with religion obviously, but it's hard to argue that It wasn't just like built to deliver a certain kind of ethical software. I hate that analogy, but a certain kind of ethical framework and pattern and practice. Uh, And some of that was the ability to have a community that's giving you feedback immediately about whether what you're doing is good or not. Uh, And feedback that you value and feedback that you actually need because you don't have the option of getting to some other community, which is, again, why in installment you find the moral law because it's about, are you, am, I, am I actually obligated to you? Yeah. Or am I not obligated to you? Is, is an obligation a fiction or is an obligation as real as something like gravity? Yes. And if you look at a little kid when you tell him you're going to do something and then you don't do it, uh, an obligation is real. We come to think obligations are not real because it's very convenient to think that obligations are not real. Yeah. And without God watching over us, and the threat of the afterlife and all of these things which religion provided as ways of shoring up for better or for worse, right? <laughs> ways of shoring up these ethical frameworks and there's a deeper conversation about mm. what those things actually mean and mm. what ontology do need to have a coherent ethics. Mm. Um, mm. But the point being that, yeah, we're thoroughly we're in a thoroughly disenchanted materialized kind of like valueless cosmos now. <laughs> and so that means that it's even hard to think about well how could an obligation be real like you yeah. know if no one finds out like just me, you know, and, and so yeah, so I think it's we're in a we're in a situation where the, you have to ask this question, how do you get someone interested in what's truly good? and think about those three that are different. There's yeah. what's good for you in the sense of what would make your unique situation a virtuous one. There's what's good insofar as fulfilling your obligations to the concrete other people in your life who you mm-hmm. actually have obligations to, mm-hmm. uh, and people distant, other citizens, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the utilitarian one: what are you actually doing mm-hmm. to
0: help the good of everybody? Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm. we we're in an obviously
1: unjust situation mm-hmm. where, and, and so yeah, so each of those, and I think if you focus on one sometimes you can land it but getting all three of those which is what's unique about what you guys are doing at the domestic academy is that you're not ignorant to all three yeah. That the concerns about existential risk in particular uh, and this is where the rationalist community like sees clearly yeah. the concerns about existential risk in particular have to do with the utilitarian mm-hmm. very real utilitarian calculus of efficiencies and limited resources and things of that nature um, but taking only that <laughs> yeah. Leaves you in a very difficult situation. Uh, yes. All the flaws that Utilitarianism has which have been pointed out by the two other traditions <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. yeah. well, so the two places my mind goes is uh, very curious about the kind of like um, Linking between the different moves like so how how do We ensure that we get a full rotation through all three of the mm-hmm. aspects of the metapsychology like right. um Maybe you could, maybe, maybe if you could speak to that, just open that up a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's,
1: that's the edge of my thinking on it, right? Mm-hmm. so, because I, I built the metapsychology using a couple different metaphysical systems. Um, and again, there's like layers of meta theory here, right? With yeah. kind of metaphysics being kind of deepest, and I'm looking to Purse and Landry. So I'm building out a metapsychology just right at the edge of where metaphysics touches psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I have this triplicate structure. And what's interesting in all the triplicate metaphysics, and there's several of them—Person, Landry, being good, Hegel is also in there. Uh, there's a relationship between the three,
0: yeah.
1: and so that means that, as we've been saying, like they're all there, we have to consider all of them. But is there a sequence? Like, do we first focus on the virtue ethic, and then, and then, like, so what's the sequence? And so the way I laid it out, and this is in the meta is that um, you know the domain of ensoulment is. Primary. Priority, yeah. And you go from installment to development to transcendence and then mm-hmm. back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and again, I'm kind of speaking extemporaneously here because I haven't actually written this out, but this vibes mm-hmm. with the work you get from theorists like Rawls and Habermas mm-hmm. and, and others, Scallion and Nussbaum, and mm-hmm. those people who still support uh, that approach to ethics, which say mm-hmm. that the moral law, which is the basic inviolable respect for persons Mm -hmm. that emerges through the moral development we talked about in relationship to persons, Mm -hmm. that that is the thing in terms of which uh, both we factor what value gets distributed Mm utilitarian-wise, and we think of the limits or constraints on the vision of the good life Mm -hmm. that is allowable. Because that's what's interesting about if you just take the virtue ethic, yeah. <laughs> you can you can you can pursue forms of self-actualization which end up basically overriding the the obligations you have to other people, and you see this. Um, so the moral, the structure of the moral law, and I keep that's a very provocative phrase, the moral yeah. law, but that's yeah. how serious these folks are. And again, read Mar- N- Nussbaum's. Yeah. Martha Newsom's Martha Newsom's resuscitation of Rawlsian theory mm-hmm. is just really worth considering but it shows that like yeah this at the most root structure in the experience we have with one another there's this inviolable there are, there are these inviolable lines mm. that we're aware of <laughs> yes and don't cross right mm. again i mentioned lying but there's, there's there's others and, and they, they ramify out into a sense of what is the form of relationship and social life that um uh allows us to be people together, yeah, so that allows us to be um, in as much freedom as we can be yeah. without violating the freedom of others yeah. it's this relationship, this kingdom of ends, right? yes. as Kant referred to it. so the question is what forms of virtue yeah. allow you to enter the kingdom of ends right and which forms of utilitarian calculus are allowable, mm-hmm. given that we are in this kingdom of ends. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so those forms of virtue ethic, which make it impossible for you to communicate with others, you know, um, mm-hmm. would make it so that you couldn't, you couldn't be a part of a moral community, even though you're an exemplary human
0: being. Right. And presumably like creating space for and opening up the feedback loops and form and like deepening the communication within a community context would Afford more ethical reflection that would then refine, right? Your ethics
1: exactly. Yeah. So the and this is <clears throat> this is where you end up. You end up with a a form of community life yes. essentially that allows for the ro- the rotation between those three to be healthy. That you can't have yeah. ethics alone. You just right. can't. You always need to have it be in a community. Yeah. So the form of community life allows you to balance the kind of needs of the individual to be uniquely virtuous and the needs of the whole to be optimized and the needs of mutual respect to be kind of, uh, held dear. Yeah. Cause you can override the needs of mutual respect to the interest of efficiency. Like this is the fear of the kind of like eco fascist, Totalitarianism, where for the sake of a utilitarian calculus, we lock down <laughs> and override the dignity of people, mm. um, and the fear mm. of like the hypercapitalist accelerationist neo Nietzschean Superman, Hubal Harare Homo Deus. That's a virtue ethic mm. of the breakaway of the breakaway civilization of Ubermensch, right? Mm. Which override both utilitarian calculus, probably because it's self-terminating, and of course the dignity of, of people. Um, mm. So, mm. so yeah. Mm. So all all three end up being essential, and nested in community life that allow for the the transformation of them. And again, the recognition of the distinctions between them, so you don't get confused about which kind mm. of ethical conversation you're having,
0: because mm. uh, mm. that happens. That happens quite a bit. Yeah, as you're speaking, I'm I'm reflecting a little bit on my own ethical education. And uh, I remember, it was actually quite recently, I'm a a little ashamed to admit how recently it was that I actually realized that there is something like an objective moral world. Right? That like, it's not just that like, in in the case that I was embedded in, that that Buddhism says lying is bad. Mm In fact, lying is unskillful hmm. in fact right and and it goes on right It's like there is this at least it seems to me either that it is the case i, I I've been reading this ethicist Nikolai Hartman, I don't know if hmm. you're familiar with totally. yeah. um, and he talks about how ethics or morality are is like as objective for humans as geometry is objective for space. That's pretty objective if you're a human. Mm -hmm. And it's like, after that, something clicked over. I was like, oh, there's like an actual, like, there is good. There is such a thing as good. Like, there is skillful behavior that is good for me and for ideally every agent in every system that I'm a part of. And it's like, now I feel like, Turned on by ethics, mm. and I'm like, oh, this is like an infinite horizon of skillfulness, right. and it's not just like my opinion. Mm. It's like I'm interfacing with this like hidden moral order that like I, I get to be a benefit mm. to everybody who's a part of that, which is all humans at least, and probably all beings. Mm. And it's like, just it's fun,
1: <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's very beautiful, man, and it's and it is. It's
0: interesting, right? Because
1: as I said, we live in a kind of disenchanted. Right,
0: well, that's where I was coming to it from. Others. Right,
1: exactly.
0: I was like, "There's no such thing as commitment or obligation, or like I'm mm. just trying to get healed.
1: Right. We're trying
0: to get happy, mm. right. and that's actually independent yeah. of virtuous action, mm. which mm. is like i looking back at is so confused, mm. but I was a product of a certain kind of mm. call it moral education,
1: right? You yeah, and this is it's interesting because like. I mean, we all are, right? Like it was, I don't think until I became a caregiver mm-hmm. for very sick people that I realized it was true. But it was like, oh, there is an, there is a good and bad decision here. Like, and not from the perspective of like, it you know, will help or hurt physiologically, mm-hmm. although that is relevant in these situations from the perspective of like, the moral structure of mm. human relationships and therefore the moral structure of the mm. universe, because we were mm. produced by the universe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I would argue that the moral structure we interface with precedes the emergence of the human. Oh. So, the deeper conversation oh. about what's the actual ontology oh. that can undergird an effective meta ethics, oh. which is an important conversation, but you're right, there's a there is a moral structure, you know. There is a whole discourse called natural law, you know, which comes out of Christianity, which was, you know, debunked and et cetera. But it, this is what they're saying. They're saying yeah. well, it's not up to us. It's not about us constructing conventions and rules which yeah. are basically arbitrary. Yeah. That there is in fact a structure to optimally good human relationship. And what's so interesting is that, like, uh, what it means is that there's there's actually always a choice you can make that's a good choice, which is mind-blowing. Like there's, yeah, and, there's
0: something like Forrest said. Yes, this is where I'm going with it. Yeah, that
1: there's actually, once you realize that, built into the structure of the universe, there's this kind of omni-multi-win solution choice uh, that that's built in and actually part of the trajectory of what's possible. Uh,
0: yeah, then it becomes a very different kind of ball game. Well, let's l- linger here, because I've actually... Mm-hmm. Uh, been confused by that statement mm. of Forrest. Um, can, can you just kind of uh, unpack that a little bit more? Like, what does it mean that there's like an. That's I mean, dedicated? it's actually
1: quite a simpler intuition. Like, because I had the intuition when I read Rawls. Because huh. it was like he, with his thought experiment of the original position, so crystallized huh. the moral structure of what we mean by fairness or justice that it, that it became alive. Like, mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, oh, everything we're saying about injustice actually proves that justice is possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? I'm not talking about, like, ridiculous mm-hmm. things people say about justice. I'm talking about, like, bomb and Rawls and mm-hmm. that tradition of the rigorous deontological provings <laughs> of the obligations we have to one another and what it means to fulfill them or not. Mm-hmm. And,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah, so I, it's a similar sense of, like, you know, it is actually... Incredibly good news. Even though we're surrounded by injustice, the fact we yes. can see it as injustice yes. means we're in touch with this thing, which could have it be yeah. different. Yeah. And so, and that's so that's that notion. So even though we're surrounded by multipolar traps in the sense of like there's no in the game theoretic option, we know that the metaphysics proves that there is <laughs> huh. uh, that actually it's there.
0: It's implied by the sense of a lack of justice.
1: Right. It's implied by the very structure of yeah. the kind of like thought and embodied position of a human right. that we live in a moral gradient. Yes. Um, and a we live in value in a stream of yes. of living value. Um,
0: yeah. So, so this is this is so key and it's something that I, I've been <clears throat> kind of wondering about a lot is that. On the one hand, there's, there's like moral reasoning or ethical reasoning. And on the other hand, there's like embodied ethical sensitivity. Like there's a felt sense of like right, right and wrong. Mm. and Those should be wedded. Those should be wedded. And, and so much, I think, of what allowed me to open up to the kind of realm of ethics in my own subjectivity... Mm. Was actually a resensitization of my organism through meditation totally. and through like my own healing, through like releasing trauma that was like armoring me. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I was kind of more receptive and I could feel the feedback, then it started. I started to see like, oh, like it matters. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was like I, well, I couldn't get this well, signal.
1: We because we're morally desensitized. Because yeah. if, if you stay sensitive morally you will perceive tremendous injustice and mm. Unethical behavior in the world and you'll be right and you'll be right and you'll be but you'll be told you're wrong You'll be told
0: you're wrong yeah. by the culture uh, and you'll be emotionally quite Distraught and so this is this is something that I'm like really interested in like this intersection between what we, our culture calls trauma and, and, and ethics yeah. Totally,
1: I mean that, and that's and so you could argue that basically, like, as I said, the, the child grows up experiencing the moral universe, gets to a certain point in their socialization that they enter what I would call the simulation. I mean, getting mm. that said they enter that, and then they're basically systematically uh, aided in desensitizing that moral perception that they built up over those mm. years. Mm. Um, mm. and uh, And it's, you know... It's this happens, in this our culture is not unique in doing this. <laughs> yes, uh, we just have very powerful technologies now, uh, and are dealing with much graver ethical dilemmas. Um, yeah. Which means that the uh, both what one is perceiving and what one is then astutely tr- and like you know defensively trying to not see those things are are kind of uh, more frightening and evil now than they've been before, I would argue, um, like existential risk being an example of something that we've yes. become ethically desensitized to and just learned
0: yes.
1: to live with. Yes.
0: It's
1: actually one of the most terrifying thoughts humans have ever had, more terrifying than an apocalypse, which is ushered by God as a meaningless extinction on a meaningless rock. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so I think there is a hardening and armoring at the level of the somatic, uh, which... Must be broken open to engage in good moral judgment. So, yeah. like to think well yes. ethically, yes. to think well ethically, you have to feel appropriately about what is happening. And this is yes. one of the more disconcerting things about the culture now: is the desensitization through the forms of media and violence and other things, the rapidity of the image stream, uh, the escalation of culture war and the kind of normalizing of creating evil bad guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Mix that in with psychiatric medications and normal medications and alcohol. And just throw that together and you're in a situation where um, the conditions for the possibility of... Sovereign moral agency are often not present, Um, and so you're in a reactive, uh, avoidant personality difficulty, um, rather than like a thoughtful, attuned, open, ethical stance. Um, And so, what you end up with is, yeah, a a a difficult situation pedagogically, where and you end up having to like break people open. To actually feel the pain of the world, to like this—this this is a painful world. Like this is a world that is that is sick, mm-hmm. that is yeah, on a suicidal <laughs> course uh, and a torturous course, and and so that—that's the perception. If you're perceiving the moral law, then you're seeing that. Now, but you're also seeing, as we just mentioned, that there's a moral law, <laughs> right? Right. Right. Then right. this is the whole post-tragic thing, like. If you don't, if you don't love someone deeply, then you'll never be hurt when they die. Yes. Right. So what do you do? Do you not love people deeply so that you're never hurt? No, you love Mm -hmm. them more deeply and you're going to get hurt more. And so this is a similar thing with the ethical Mm -hmm. stance is that Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. there's a need to, to embrace that. Uh, and move to the post-tragic mm. ethical dimension of the ethical mm. uh, ethical dimension of the ethical the post-tragic station mm. in in relation to the ethical. Um, mm. So that this is all true, and so the somatic is key. And again, there's been so many errors in the history of moral philosophy, and this was one of them: the separating of. The cognitive element from the intuitive and emotive element, like mm-hmm. literally in moral philosophy, like there's cognitive, there's emotive and intuitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, as we just laid out, those three, cognitive, emotive, intuitive, those are all related in the meta psychology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Nussbaum, et cetera, and the utilitarians are cognitivists. They're like, dude, there's a right answer to this like Mm. there's an answer about what's fair in this situation that's objectively Mm. true Mm. as objectively true as like what will happen to this ball if it rolls down the Mm. right Mm. uh and so that's important to get and but it's deeper than the utilitarian calculus it's into what's true about again the obligation commitment we have to others um spoken just between the two of us with no witness what's the worth of that obligation right and that's the stuff that human society is actually run on and like that's the stuff that human society is actually run on laws and money and all those things are proxy for non-institutionalized communicatively created trust Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. commitment relationship you know and like you read the old testament it's always like two people on the road they're doing some transaction and it's like he was there, he was there, and God was there, <laughs> and you make the deal. But God's there, right? Um, so the absence of the the absence of God became the absence of moral law, right? And so Kant and others are trying to say, no, that's not true. Like we can be agnostic about that and still realize that in our embodied experience of one another, there's these mm-hmm. lines that we can't cross and remain being respectful people. Like, mm. Uh, mm. but it the culture had gone very far down these lines so again as we said utilitarianism became kind of you're allowed to talk about utilitarianism but you can't get too spooky and talk mm. about moral emotion and mm. and uh, let alone like you know universal moral mm. law uh so so yeah i think uh you know there is as i've said in my Book like one of the things that characterizes the future of education is a return of the sacred. Yeah, because the sacred is the only place where you can actually do ethical education. Um, uh-huh. You know, like that triple that Wilbur lays out in the Religion of Tomorrow. You know that in pre-modernity, God was everywhere. In modernity, God was nowhere. In whatever comes next, God's everywhere again. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the not the pre-modern god, <laughs> which was rightfully deposed in many respects by the modern,
0: mm. uh,
1: but a re-emergence of the sacred, and again that mm. the somehow the breaking open and the returning yes. into the living stream of value. Yeah, um, and yeah. yeah. So this is it's very it's very important, you know, um, and it's disconcerting. Like also. Uh, you know that that Steiner used to say that the opposite of the human is not the animal. The opposite of the human is the demonic.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: that we're actually not the animals we're supposed to be, if we lose these ethical ways of being together. Like if we lose that sense, yes. it would be like losing the sense of gravity. Like we wouldn't be an effective animal if we lost the moral sense if i can call it that so yes. what do we then we become we become something different because we're still operating on an abstract system we're still working with infinite ideas right um anyway so that that's the i think what's disconcerting is that it's it's not just like yeah the fail states are ugly when you start to get yeah. when you start to get the breakdown of the fundamental breakdown, not just of like ethical frameworks, but everyone thinking that we need to find an ethical framework, but the mm-hmm. breakdown of the idea that there could ever be an
0: mm-hmm. ethical
1: mm-hmm. framework, which is where right. we're at, different. Right. Right. <laughs> which is different than debating which ethical yes. framework you deploy is the basic idea like, yeah, it's an interesting conversation, but it basically doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll let the AI decide. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and I think like implicit in that statement about like uh, Rudolf Steiner's statement, is like that which is most human is, is the human that is most virtuous. Mm, correct. Right. And I, I think of like, frankly, my experience with Soryu at mm. the Monastic Academy where I was like, oh, humans can be like this. Right. I want to be like that. Yep. Like, that's awesome. That's super cool that you can be that good.
1: Yeah. And, and this is how moral education has traditionally worked. You right. Know, it's through the moral exemplar who's in an embodied community who's not advertising themselves as being moral who's showing you every day through what they do in embodied community that they are uh that's a tremendous lesson and yeah i mean that is is one of the it's one of the only ways frankly Mm -hmm. and it's and james ron Baldwin used to talk about this like you need the moral ideal that's why jesus jesus and the buddha are so interesting they're different but they're through those ideals yeah. of possible self, but when they're fiction, it's not the same as when they're when they're there and actually doing it
0: uh, Yeah, this is what um, Joe Edelman. I don't know if you're familiar. With, mm-hmm. He talks about how um, Values flow in social networks through admiration mm-hmm. right that mm-hmm. there's this 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 movement of admiration that like right. Presences that which you are kind of called to be in a certain sense mm-hmm. and I I, I it's so clear in the monastic academy. Like you see somebody doing something, and it's like, I'm like,
1: oh wow, that's yeah. a great way to be. Yeah. No, and it, it's love, right? I mean, yes. love is the currency of ethics. Yes, right? and oh. and that's huh. how that that's how that relationship works with with Soryu, and it, and like and that this was Maslow's view, right? Abraham Maslow's view. Oh. When he was looking at the self actualized and self transcending people. He was like, if you're a biologist and you're in the field you gather the most exemplary archetypal specimen. That's the one, mm. right? The one that's the most butterfly. <laughs> like that's the that's the that's the monarch butterfly. If you want that, that nest out there. That, right, yeah. that, that <laughs> bird's nest out that, there, exactly. And she's feeding her babies now. The bird's nest, oh. it was so bird's nest. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to take a broken bird's nest or whatever. Like. So that notion of like, what is the most human? Mm. You know, like what's the deepening of the human into its mm. full potential? Mm. Um, that that that's one of the dimensions of the ethical. I would put it in the virtue ethic mm. in many ways. Like, what's that full potentiality? Um, and again, now, as we said, the balance is important. To yes. get people pursue that spiritual teacher route. Yeah. But not remain embodied in community, yeah. <laughs> and therefore, precisely by becoming an incredibly powerful, virtuous being, they've actually not done well by the other dimensions mm. of their ethical responsibilities. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, we see this with the uh, the the less than admirable personal lives, right, yes. of many spiritual teachers, and that's about the obligation you have. Not to your students who admire you for being virtuous, but to the people who you need as a part of your life yes. to sustain yes. you and yes. to be with you and yes. maybe take care of you if you get sick. And like yes. those people, these are the yes. obligations. Are you present in those obligations? Yes. Uh, or do they somehow contradict with the virtuous picture of yourself that you've created? Can you become a person who cleans the bathroom after you've become that person who's that virtuous on stage? Huh. Right? Huh. So these are the tensions, right? Uh, huh. So as much as I'm saying, yes, we need virtuous people to admire, I'm also saying in the right context and conditions (laughs) where they can actually be tested in the other dimensions of their thing, right? Because you could also be, he's virtuous, but he miscalculates the utilitarian thing. And then then the community fails, the the money runs out, there's disputes, like you know what I mean? So, So it's the full dimensionality of it. But yeah, without those exemplars, you've... And that's another thing, like we live in a culture now that is actually kind of built to make it impossible for those exemplars to emerge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or to be recognized. Or to be recognized, precisely. And so, yeah, there's a... Yeah, again, the the idea of creating those containers of ethical socialization outside the stream of the culture, uh, which require kind of like a breaking open and re-entering into the living stream of value. Um, And then the finding the languages and conversational spaces that allow for that to begin. And then the places where you go to be, uh, you know, to be proven mm. essentially to be proven, to be tested, to mm. be, to see if it, if it works, if it works, Yeah, like that's the only way, like you can't teach a kid to play basketball and not have him play basketball. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you has to be done just like you have to, Kids have to explore tons of different, go outside and balance on different things to get the full range of their sensory motor experience. You have to be exposed to all of these different contexts to mm. to, to build all your ethical I mean, range, all your ethical range, all of your yes. different capacities to to interface. And now it doesn't mean you should put yourself in some crazy. Situation right. but of ethical heroism, but
0: like right. yeah, service
1: trip or something Right and these things are actually giving you away from the obligations that you may actually have that are more concrete where you're at Right. So now we're back to the like be where you are. That's where the obligations are um, So, yeah, so I think it's uh, it's super admirable super admirable and and Yeah, two you said it was two months the trip that what you're doing in Canada? Three months. Three months. Of yeah. It's almost long enough.
0: Almost long enough? What? How, how long is long enough? <laughs>
1: I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that, like, human development takes a long time. Yeah. Oh, totally. And yeah. it's like fits and starts and nonlinear progressions. And, oh, yeah. And in these domains, as you've already mentioned, like, the emotional processing
0: is very real. Well, th- this is something that I think uh, p- part of why I wanted to start podcasting or release more episodes is to kind of like really look at this point around tr- what we call trauma or emotional healing mm-hmm. and ethics because so much of the discourse around what do you call it like self-development mm-hmm. uh, or human development as i see it at least in like the popular culture is around healing and, and trauma healing mm-hmm. And like as you speak it's like the question comes to mind like how much of what we call trauma is just like stunted moral development Mm. i mean
1: it's so interesting because like so there is across animal species especially in mammals Biophysiological trauma response mm-hmm. neurochemistry things of that nature so there's, there's in one sense a pretty precise biological definition of what trauma is in the brain mm. and how that works right
0: yeah. yeah
1: but then there's this word trauma that we use which is used very broadly to describe uh, terrible things that happen to people mm-hmm. that or things that people experience as terrible which may or may not actually induce that brain state
0: mm-hmm.
1: of Actual quote unquote trauma. So that's the first thing worth mentioning. Yeah. So we're working with that broader definition. Yes. That's what most people are are referring to. And as we already said, like if you maintain your moral sensitivity, like the kind of moral sensitivity you had when you were like seven or eight years old, you would be traumatized by your interaction with the world. Um, you would move into situations. Naively expecting to trust that people will treat you with respect, and you move into situations imagining that no one will take advantage of you, and that people mean what they say, right. and those things will be disproven. Because you're
0: living according to the moral order that you perceive, and you say people ought to treat this each other with respect. Right, and then when that doesn't happen, there's a way in which that is yeah. traumatic. That's
1: exactly, traumatic. it's traumatic and it's
0: cynicism-inducing.
1: Right, so yes. To the degree that you're kind of like, because another aspect of moral education is that people are not always moral. <laughs> yeah. So, like, sometimes we think we're doing moral education by only showing the virtuous side of life, not preparing mm. to deal with that. So, you know, most of the rich ethical frameworks have languages of condemnation as well as languages of praise, mm. right? So, the analysis of evil is as important as the yes. analysis of salvation and sin. Um, so, you get a kind of naive, pre tragic pre-cynical moral sensitivity which gets trounced by the world, right? Mm. And then usually it falls into a tragic, cynical, amoral or immoral kind of mm. relationship um, where a lot of what you're doing is preserving self-esteem through group membership when you're kind of signaling moral virtue, mm. but you're, there's not a deep embodied sense as there had been mm. That my goddamn it, there's a good and a bad way to be, regardless of what you all think,
0: right?
1: Um, and so the idea is that a kind of post-tragic, post-cynical re-entry into the stream of value, which accounts for the fact that many people are living outside of the stream of of value, um, right. that's what's needed, and then and then there's an ability to re-engage actually more effectively. Right. Um, in a sense, because you're you're not naive about the actual situation that humans are in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, this notion that a lot of what is experienced as trauma by people is actually unprocessed moral information. Something like that, right? That, yeah. that the experience is one of them perceiving that there's something profoundly wrong yes. with how society is working.
0: And they almost have to like turn away
1: from that right. in order to continue. To well, and they're being told that, no, there's nothing profoundly wrong about how society is working. Like, And, and so there's this deep duplicity that's detected. Um, and then because there's nowhere else to go, <laughs> there's not some other society you're going to go join where... Uh, you know, there aren't giant factory farms making, you know, like, So you just perceive all of it, and it becomes very difficult to hold mm. To hold it. So mm. you retreat from the stream of value. Um, because to stay in it's too painful, it's traumatizing. Mm. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so that sense of trauma, and especially reactive trauma, ends up um, undermining... In a kind of almost cynical way, the kinds of conversations that could allow for actual healing, which are the conversations that allow you to enter the stream of value again, um, but they're those are those are emotionally complicated, difficult mm. conversations, more emotionally really complicated than mm. the than, than some of the things that that traumatic responses can elicit. Mm. Um, and again, it's not that people don't get traumatized; they do. Right. And I'm saying like people who actually get traumatized like real trauma <laughs> that's some serious shit, yeah. and should not be confused with someone saying something you didn't like in yes. class right? Yes. which is sometimes yes. described as traumatic um, right and so like we first need to know what the hell are we talking about yeah. here um, right. and so yes people are traumatized um, but the pervasive sense that many people have that like somehow everyone's traumatized <laughs> <laughs> i think is an awareness that yeah everyone Is kind of having low-grade trauma afflicted upon them by virtue of their moral sensitivity being Consistently
0: violated by the society that they live in. And that's such a profound reframe of how most people consider this which I think that that same insight typically gets translated as a very like individualistic journey of personal healing and happiness and not a pointing out of the profound interconnectedness of our moral sensitivity, and like that we're right. all intrinsic moral beings right. who are kind of like put in this horrible situation where we can't help but compromise our or see, in most cases can't help but compromise their moral integrity. Right?
1: Yeah, that's the game. I mean, it's
0: incredible. Though
1: animals eat other animals, like it's a it's a dog eat dog universe. Uh, but it's also a universe where you know mothers feed baby birds yes. <laughs> and yes. wolves take care of the sick. Um, so yeah, there's, there's no ethically neutral place to stand in the mm. universe. There's no ethically neutral place to stand in the universe. Uh, and so, yeah, you're in the game. <laughs> mm. like, And there are rules. Uh, mm. And yeah, I think it's it becomes mm. uh, eventually too hard to keep playing by those rules, and so then you basically try to find a way to quote heal yourself, so you can enter this other game, right out of the f- out of the stream of value,
0: um, mm.
1: the game that's traumatizing you when you're trying mm. to play by the moral <laughs> by the moral framework, uh, game A, let's say, right. Yes. Um, and so a lot of what I see is people, and this became the whole field of psychotherapy, right? Like, how do you adjust to this world? Like, this is the t- how do you become optimized? To succeed in this world, right? Right. Um, this has long been the question. Of course, Eric Fromm, right? You know, is it should you can should you be sane in an insane society? Like those basic foundational questions at the root of psychotherapy, we're kind of like brushed under the rug. I think, especially with the psychopharmacological approaches, where right. it ends up being this um, question of well, you know. You're not going to fix this immoral society. Work. Yeah, so you yeah. better find a way to basically get along with it and Function. not just not be so sure. upset by it. You know, like oh, why are you so upset by it? the violation of obligation? You know, <laughs> why are you so? Like upset? as you
0: say that, I get chills. Like that is
1: that's, evil. Yeah, I mean yeah. um, <laughs> by by, and that's a complex. I mean, seems like a complex it, word, but yeah, it is. Well, it's in it's, the context
0: that we're talking about. It's it's it's, it's right. supporting people in. Debasing and and even erratic, like turning more thoroughly away from their moral sensibility,
1: and also just and again Hannah uh, uh, Arendt. How do you say her name? Hannah Hannah Arendt. Arendt. Yeah, Yeah. Hannah Arendt. She talked about evil being basically like the absence of thought, like the absence, Mm. the absence of deep reflection. Mm. Uh, and so that's what they're promoting. Like, you know, don't think about <laughs> these mm-hmm. deeper layers and structures of what's moral and what's ethical. Like, mm-hmm. You know, go with the flow. Like that's evil is it's the benign, mm. everyday, common acquiescence. That's mm-hmm. the that's the evil we think of evil. You know, like the concentration camps, right? Yeah. But, but even then, like, and she was talking about that. That quote's actually from her book on fascism. So she right. was talking about Nazi Germany. Like, yeah, the concentration camps, of course, evil. Like, that's when you think about the definition. sometimes you'd look at. But in the everyday functioning of the bureaucracies yes. <laughs> is where the real evil occurred. And it was widely distributed, low-grade psychopathology, which is a lot of what we're facing now. And so, so yeah, they, the message that one of the reasons you're feeling like everyone's traumatized is because our moral sensitivities are... Mm-hmm being continually violated by the society we live in. The problem with that message is that now what? <laughs> like the message of healing, return to the world, succeed like you never thought you would before in the world because now you're healed. That's not the message. The message is the world is the world is not <laughs> going to be a place where you will be happy, successful, fulfilled, <laughs> like mm. that the world's not going to be that place like there are things that you can accomplish in this world beautiful amazing ethically virtuous transcendent loving like you can do a lot in this world that needs to be done but there's a whole dimension of human activity which uh is always going to be uh entered from this stance of kind of like moral alienation so you have to go Mm. So this has always been the kind of bodhisattva kind of like Christian kind of like view here that we're in Babylon (laughs) and, and there's a way that we need to not retreat from it. No, we need to go in there we need to fix this thing, but we can't go in naively thinking that we're dealing with people who are also holding the same sense of what the stream of value is. Um, So I think that that's one of the key lessons that there's a, there's a kind of once you start to see this, then it's like, yeah, there's a there's a, a fortitude actually, yes. and a, kind of a mandate to yes. to engage, and that's why I was happy to hear your man talk about Jesus and the turning over the money lenders, and that actually being the energy we need as opposed to the Buddhistic energy, which is what okay. I say, of course, in chapter five of my book. Yeah. Um, Yes. And so, yeah, the notions that you get of the, uh, you know,
0: yeah, so, I'm right there, I'm right there. Yeah, and as you were talking about the, um, like, walking back into the world with this uh, kind of post-tragic mm-hmm. realization, like, the the word that kind of rang out in me was like, or the, what rang out in me was like, that's an adult. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It is an adult, Yeah, totally. I mean, that's and again, the we've talked about the crisis of intergenerational transmission, and if if we're right about that, then it would mean yeah, there's a there's not many adults out there, um, and yeah, the adult is is that person who takes that kind of responsibility for themselves and the situation and others, um, and takes it unconditionally. Yes, they don't take it because they're being watched or they're going to get a reward they take it they give actually without the thought of reciprocity that's one of the major kind of tenets of this whole thing which kind of like flips the biology on its head and actually puts the human in this incredible place within nature you know that that sense of non-reciprocated care which is given without a sense of there needing to be return on investment, right? And the, it's like an excess. It's an excess of good that a human is built to give. Uh, and it's very interesting. Like, I think of the bird feeding her babies here, and motherhood's a great example of that. You know, if, if you're giving to your children and then like keeping a ledger about mm-hmm. the things that they're going to owe you, you back for what you've done for them mm-hmm. it's like, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. not really parenting you know the parent gives without gives for its own sake right mm-hmm. um, and that's one of the the lessons of uh, uh, of the metaethics and again that's back to the good news right that okay. there's actually always this position also again like uh, this metaethicist Carl Otto Appel Howard Moss's friend talked about like a Extra worldly position of choice, which mm. is to say, like within the stream, you can always alter the stream. Uh,
0: mm.
1: uh, the, the, yeah, there's something, mm. there's something, um, mm. this is maybe just another way of saying free will is related to ethics mm. <laughs> that, that there's, that there's, uh, a freedom. Uh, And and that's what ethics shows us and constrains us in, the the use of the freedom,
0: right? The use of the freedom, tremendous freedom. Uh, Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I've been thinking about as I design this uh, intensive is we have all these different practices. And uh, one way of looking at them is they, they lead to different kinds of happiness or different kinds of well-being. Mm. And as you say, like, you realize that the world cannot, isn't there to kind of make you happy, isn't there to um, satisfy you in a certain way. This is a kind of post-tragic mm-hmm. perspective. And yet it, it does seem to me that that living in accord with what you know to be good and true delivers you a kind of happiness. I would actually say more is a kind of deep meaningfulness mm-hmm. that makes the burden, that burden, like totally worth carrying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the right choice.
1: Right. Yeah. That's it. I mean deep meaningfulness is a great word there. <clears throat> there's actually empirical research on quote happiness <laughs> that shows this, that there's like these two dimensions of it. That there's low grade superficial happiness which is what most people pursue which is instant gratification and the feeling the tangible feeling of I'm happy (laughs) then there's this other one which includes like you know long term delayed gratification Mm -hmm. for like practice and study and children and other things where the concrete experience on a day to day basis is not one of being like hey I'm happy I'm feeling great today it's one of focus and commitment and restraint and constraint and discipline, um, but the long in the long term, the people who focus on those report this really interesting index of something like deep meaningful satisfaction with life yes. upon reflection. Yes, yes. <laughs> As opposed to the concrete, immediate gratification of happiness, those people in the long run end up suffering because they can never be in a position where they actually have an opportunity to deeply reflect on the meaning of their lives. So they stay stuck in the hedonic kind of Treadmill, mm-hmm. um, precisely to avoid the deep, meaningful reflection that is yielded when someone has that kind of commitment. And so, you're absolutely right. And that's basically okay. what I was saying. Okay. There's incredible things that can be done in this world in the domain of insultment and in particular, um, but they are not the things that are sold <laughs> right uh, in the marketplace. And um, that includes the spiritual marketplace, right? which brings us like. <laughs> Full circle in that sense of like you know what uh, what are we offering when we're offering people a way out when we're offering them a way into some new form of life um, and yeah I think there's a certain moral realism when we bring to it which makes these things only able to be contained in in a kind of mystery school in the wilderness container. Basically, you know, that the self selecting group who can get in there and actually do the work and who realized, as Trump said, I think like enlightenment's your greatest disappointment.
0: We're
1: <laughs> not to quote Trump, but uh, the point being that, yeah, most of what we're sold mm-hmm. as like the good life, the ethical, virtuous life, the self actualized, like enlightened, woke, like whatever it is. Uh, you know, these things have that kind of banal, superficial, potentially evil quality of giving us the tools to acquiesce to this situation, giving us the tools to deal with the armoring <laughs> um, that we must. I, mean, I always think about, like, when you go to when people go to India and they're, they're going to India for a spiritual, a spiritual quest, a spiritual pilgrimage, and they're told explicitly, don't look at the beggars and don't give money to the beggars. <laughs> Right, like it's a classic. I think probably trope in spiritual teaching to recite that, but it's just true. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, we are deeply confused about what we're supposed to be doing with our lives, like what makes for a good life. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think we've added some clarity here, but as I said, the the cultural surround and the languages and everything, like a lot of a lot of, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see because we're definitely not the only ones thinking on this wavelength. And so I've, I've had conversations and felt a bubbling up of a return to the ethical, right? A return to the mythic, return mm-hmm. to the um, sacred and other dimensions that have been, you know, jettisoned to the margins of educational practice mm-hmm. and become distorted. <clears throat> so somehow we're centering. Like kind of like the Bildung movement, which is often talked about, like a a major recentering and making more primary these forms of enculturation and education, precisely when the old forms of education are completely irrelevant. Which is my whole the whole point of my my book, really. Mm. Um,
0: Yes. Mm. Mm. So, I think the one like the last place I'd like to spend a little bit of time is. uh, Lifting up something you said earlier, which resonates with me, but I don't actually understand why. I uh, thought so it seems like a worthy place to spend some time. Which you said, um, you said, love is the currency of ethics, and you, you also opened up a little bit, saying the uh, talking about the significance of the relationship between eros and ethics. Yeah. Oh. and and this is something that I'm very 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 curious about, and would love to just in whatever way it feels relevant based on our conversation so far to sort Let's of like open, open that up. Yeah, I mean, this is core to the work I do with Gaffney, the Center for
1: Integral Wisdom. That phrase, love is the currency of ethics. It might as well be his phrase. <laughs> you know, I think mm. his was like, love is the currency of connection or something. Mm. But yeah, the, the idea is that just like there's been this tension between cognition and emotion, mm. right? there's been this tension between eros and ethics. That ethics is a practice of self-denial yes it's a practice of the deadening uh of our alive visceral desirous intentions that ethics just suppress those right and uh that's probably the worst thing that ever happened to thinking about ethics and what's so interesting is that none of the great ethical theorists talk that way because they're like when you read socrates and you read others like there's a There's a visceral enlivening that occurs when something ethical is on the
0: line. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I feel turned on by ethical choice making. That's what I'm saying.
1: It's it's deeply empowering, and it's because it involves the erotic merger with reality. Uh. right. So it's like the same kind of thing that happens when you do a math. I don't do math, but I know that mathematicians are like, Enthralled by the reality that they're playing with and actually fall in love with like a, the beauty of an equation like they talk like and And similarly with ethics, it's like there's a there's a merger with reality and what's pointed about ethics is that that reality is you yeah. Like it's not I figured out how to engineer like an electric car. It's like I figured out how to be in reality With you And so that's very very much an ethical and erotic Experience erotic in the sense of like moving towards greater wholeness, moving towards greater aliveness, consciousness, connection, like these erotic directionalities of evolution are are the same directionalities as the ethical directionalities, right? Pulling us together into networks of love, basically. Uh, so that sense of the ethical and the erotic being one is key. And so you could argue that there isn't so much there's so much confusion in sex, sexuality, erotics, all of that. It's because we've tried to disentangle those <laughs> instead of admitting, in fact, that there needs to be a deep, as I said, like a invigorating moral energy. Like that's what you get. And and so we find that, you know, but we find pseudo erotic replacements for the truth the true potency. Um, Mm. You know, so I think one of the dangers of things like propaganda is that they capture people's moral enthusiasms, Mm. like advertising or pornography or something like it's Mm -hmm. just an inappropriate capture of a deep Mm. biophysical drive that connects us with others in reality. Um, But when you're in a situation um, of there being an ethical situation, like you're in an ethical situation, um, and you're aware of it and you can make the correct action and you have the power to do that and you can do it. I mean, that's like the closest you could get to saying you've like done the human thing. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing closer is probably like sex, mm-hmm. right. And making a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. You stepped into the form, the archetype of the human. The human is the ethical actor
0: yeah.
1: in the universe. Um, not that anim- the animals are not unethical. I'm just saying that there's that's a different conversation. But there's this quality to the completion. So the yeah the so that's that's one doorway into the erotic and the ethical. And then of course there are others that are more specific just to human relationship. You know that any intimacy breeds obligation. And so this is a deep confusion that people have with sexual intimacy and even other forms of intimacy. Um, you know, like the intimacy we share yes. virtue of these conversations, yes. like I hold myself obligated, responsible, committed to you in a certain respect because of what we've touched in our intimacy. Um, and so this is one of the reasons I'm introverted and don't talk to a lot of people because I feel so tangibly like, mm-hmm. dude, we just had this whole thing. Like I'm mm-hmm. with you now in this, like we're mm-hmm. together now in this mm-hmm. because we've been intimate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so Yeah, so that's another dimension where it's actually being attuned to the erotic flows between people. I'm not talking about sex I'm talking about Energy and attraction like your your love of story Is you is erotic. It's not in the sense of like sexual love. It's in the yeah. sense of like merger with common ideal yeah. and You know joy in the joy of the other and vice versa and those kinds of qualities that show that we're in a common shared field of, of value so yeah, so it's it's pretty deep and I think it's like I said it's one of the worst things that happened to ethics was it's you know being taken away from that one other reaction was the the collapsing of the erotic to the hedonistic and then and, sexual. and then the ex and then the ethical to both of those so that mm. basically it's a form of intuitionist or emotivist ethics that ignores the cognitive, which basically says, "Yeah, ethics and errors are related, and basically you do what feels good." Mm-hmm. And so that's not that's not what I'm saying. But doing good feels good. <laughs> uh, but just because it feels good doesn't mean you're doing good. You say um,
0: it's so good. I mean. I was getting that hit while you were talking. Like I was like, "Oh yes, I indeed know what you're speaking about, and it is like intensely erotic." Not, I think, for people listening, we both have this common understanding that I think you said it, but it's important to say it again that the erotic is not the sexual. Right. The sexual is a is a v- variety of the erotic.
1: It's the most like obvious. Yes. Model.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, like, lo- like loving a, a tree or like like falling in love Mm -hmm. with an idea there's there's eros there right and not the thought of loving a tree the 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 visceral the being with the tree
1: merged with it in a field of of love basically and and those are the fabrics that again weave ethical action make that's what makes it possible
0: Um, yeah and and i what came to mind uh Is so, we do a lot of circling Mm -hmm. at the Monastic Academy. We've talked about circling Mm -hmm. previously, and one of the, you know, say ethics within circling is to follow the aliveness. Right. And it's interesting because in that subculture, in that body of practice, often that gets expressed as dubiously ethical behavior Mm -hmm. because there there's a way i think in which it gets reduced to this kind of hedonistic what Mm -hmm. feels good but in fact a richer understanding of where aliveness is would integrate the ethical and so it's like could we play in a relational space in which we're trying to follow aliveness but a more comprehensive vision of what is aliveness such that we're actually like Co-discovering the moral landscape and yeah. that, What would that give yeah. birth to? Yeah,
1: that's exactly the way to think about it The advice to follow the aliveness or follow the pleasure or follow the arrows is good advice If you factor that there are levels of those
0: <laughs>
1: Right that there are levels of and this is again Gaffney's teaching levels of pleasure levels of erotic merger and you definitely don't want to follow lower level <laughs> aliveness <laughs> right. and right. think that it's ethical. are some context insert, which is perfectly fine to follow that. Like when you're hungry, like you eat what you need to eat. Uh, um, but even with hair, like you need to pay yeah. attention to what you're eating. You yeah. can't just, you know, so, so there's a level of reflection that can be brought to that kind of advice, which merges with what I'm saying. But mostly that stuff is, um, Yeah, like exculpating, just getting yourself off the hook from actual obligation and Mm -hmm. kind of diving into something akin to a virtue ethic focused Mm -hmm. on feeling good and self-optimization and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so the the actual advice is um, to, you know, experience that kind of aliveness uh, in the context of non obvious things that are not obviously pleasurable and Mm. some people who meditate get this eventually right right why the hell are you doing that you're torturing yourself you're torturing yourself i mean sometimes for some people it never doesn't hurt Uh, but similarly like i had this experience in caregiving it's like this is not a pleasant experience and yet it is absolutely correct like it's in the ethical sense like this is these actions or are like pristinely appropriate actions. And I actually realized the privileged position I was in to mm. be in a situation to be able to see that I was acting ethically. Mm. If that makes sense. Like mm. and again it was my, you know, people that I love. And so it was it was deeply erotic merger mm. in the field of obligation and value, um, in tremendous pain. And right. yet it was Precisely that opportunity to like do something that you knew was good,
0: yeah. um, even if it made you feel bad and yeah, you yes. weren't sleeping enough and you weren't taking care of yourself. All of that. All of that's
1: true, and yet, um, yeah, the uh, that's where I experienced the the, the moral structure <laughs> of the universe. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, and so. What that means is that although the pain of staying in was great, the pain of leaving would have been intolerable, basically. And it doesn't mean that the pleasure of leaving, right? So these are different things. (laughs) Like, I could have relieved a tremendous, you know, one could relieve a tremendous amount of physical distress by changing situation, and yet the psychological, ethical insolment consequences of the violation of that kind of obligation is a pain
0: I didn't even want to play with. Basically, yes. you know. And and I, so one of the things that uh, you know I talk about Sori because you know I spend a lot of time around him. So it's, he talks about how one way of understanding what the path is is as making that move of compromising your moral integrity increasingly intolerable. To the point where you just will not. (laughs) Yeah. You just won't. Nothing can make you compromise. (laughs) This was the problem with
1: stepping into that space as a caregiver is that like it was very hard for me to get a job to do normal things. (laughs) Because I couldn't do bullshit. I just couldn't do bullshit and I can't take your bullshit. Just don't (laughs) give me that because what I'm living in now is so much more real and tangibly that I'm just like, I became so attuned. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's still that way. It's still that way. I feel hypersensitive to the ethical dimensions of, of people's lives in our society right now. Um, and yeah, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And this is, again, it's like what contexts and conditions actually create the experience for people of of the reality of the consequences of their action, you know, like, and again, karma, and now to the ontology what actually gives us a viable meta ethics, but there are things that it's worth knowing are true Mm -hmm. about the structure of the universe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And then there are things that you just need to experience as true by living with people. Yes. Um, And those need to kind of merge into a coherent whole. Um, uh, You know, if you're being told that there are consequences because of the, you know, structure of the universe to what you do. But every time you do something wrong, no one gives you actually any concrete feedback in your society. And you're going to be like, I'm not sure that whole moral universe thing makes sense. I'm not getting any feedback that this thing is bad that I'm doing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, I think half the battle here is trying to figure out how to resuscitate those experiences. Mm. Uh, I remember when we talked, I don't remember which it was, but when we talked about metaphysics and the metaphysics of the practice of being together in reality. Uh, And so that's what's needed a practice, ethical practices. Um, And Mm.
0: Mm. yeah. It was really fun because one of the main things, spaces that I'm opening up to play in in this uh, intensive in August is a, a group process of. Ethical discovery mm-hmm. a kind of ethical sense making where we, we do dip into like emotional healing and and like working out relational tensions but in service of Choice making and refining mm-hmm. and sophisticating our own moral uh, Wayfinding mm-hmm. essentially both as individuals and the collective and it's, right. It it's so clear to me that one of the gifts of The monastic system is this deep community that, that as you say that like so much, I think it's the case that moral education is impossible outside of the context mm. of living community. It is and absolutely is.
1: and again, mm. I think, and I think, legitimate spiritual teachings actually impossible mm. outside of that context. As I said, it's the virtue ethic versus the other two, and the only way to get all three locked in on an individual is to have them surrounded <laughs> by a community that actually has moving parts and food and shit yeah. and all of that stuff, like, dishes, money, yeah, totally. all of that needs to be in there. Uh, I think that's essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's way too little of that. Um, and so that's always been my hope for what you guys are doing, is that you actually have a context where there can be legitimate teacherly authority uh, in a world where it's very difficult to create that, that context. Uh,
0: and yeah, that's, that's huge thank you zach is there anything else that you want to say or express before we no i this?
1: haven't just extemporaneous or
0: talked about ethics in a while so this was fun <laughs> i yeah. appreciate oh, it oh cool yeah I, I, I love i love it it's um mm. i i can tell how much i love ethics of how much i get now like viscerally like excited and just like like you're speaking about it calls forth the love i have oh. of it and it's mm. Uh, I have a, a lot of it it's thanks to you i think mm-hmm. your framing of these topics has, has brought it to life in my life and i'm uh, really deeply appreciative of okay. that it's an honor thank you